I don't know if you've listened to my podcast before, but sometimes there's a bit of explicit language, and this is one of those times. It's Tuesday, December 12th, 2017. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Shame and accountability. Those are the watchwords for today. Those are the qualities that some in this society have, others seem to lack. Shame and accountability. I thought of shame and accountability when I began to consider this. Ryan Lizza, Glenn Thrush, excellent journalists both. They have done a lot to increase our understanding of the present moment we're living in, to hold Donald Trump accountable. But they're gone, and he's there. How is that? How is that fair? Al Franken patted some asses. Definitely not a good thing to do. Donald Trump claims to have never met the 16 women who are accusing him of sexual harassment. A few of them he definitely has met because we have extensive photographs and videotape. So how is that? How is that fair? Well, the explanation is this. It's two words. Shame and accountability. If you have the ability to experience shame and the capacity to enact accountability, then perhaps reform can happen. But if you don't, game on. And so that's why the Trump administration marches along in the way it always has, despite public opinion polls, despite every bit of empirical data that it's not actually achieving its agenda because they have no shame and accountability. It's working out well for them. Look at the members of the media who the Trump administration have tried to call into account. Dave Weigel, Brian Ross, Manu Raju. Where is their accountability? Sarah Huckabee Sanders asks. Now, the media is thousands, if not tens of thousands, or if you count Facebook or social media, it's everyone. So how do we decide that these are the representatives of the media? Well, it's because they're the ones who made the mistake. Who do we choose to represent us if you're Sarah Huckabee Sanders? It's the three guys who screwed up to varying degrees. They stand for the entire media, and they should be held accountable. But what about the accountability on your side? From your podium, Ms. Huckabee Sanders. Well, it's a lot easier when you don't have the ability to experience shame or the capacity to enact accountability. On the show today, in the spiel, I will talk about the grand experiment in shame and accountability that Alabama will be undergoing today. But first, you know, why don't we talk about a politician who actually did things, who delivered on his promises, who when he died and a local man from his hometown was crying, someone asked him, did you know him? Did you know Franklin Delano Roosevelt? And the man said, no, but he knew me. Here's Robert Dalek out with a big new biography of FDR. Franklin Delano Roosevelt once contracted typhoid fever by brushing his teeth with contaminated water. And that, dear listener, is only the, I don't know, 800th most interesting revelation in the new biography, Franklin D. Roosevelt, A Political Life. It is written by Robert Dalek, eminent historian. Hello, Professor Dalek. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. What kind of Democrat was Franklin? You used the phrase a Grover Cleveland Democrat, which I wasn't sure what that meant. <laughs> yeah, well, it was a sort of uh, conservative Democrat. Of course, 
Grover Cleveland was seen as a, at the time, was called a gold bug. He was for solid money against silver dollars, as they say. And in fact, in the uh, 1890s, there was a demagogue by the name of Pitchfork Ben Tillman from <laughs> South Carolina. And Tillman said, I'll go up to Washington if you send me to the Senate, and I'll stick this pitchfork into Grover Cleveland's big fat ribs, you see. <laughs> so uh, there was antagonism to these uh, comfortable, well-off sort of elitists. And that's what the Roosevelt's were. And that's what Grover Cleveland was. So they were uh, striking differences in that uh, Democratic Party. I think just like baseball at the time, the nicknames were better. There was uh, Pitchfork and Cactus Jack. That was uh, John Garner and Nance, right? Yes. And and that nickname was because he was against cactus as the state flower, but they called him Cactus Jack. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) So was Roosevelt, um, obviously he became a champion of progressivism. Yes. What form did it take before the presidency? I ask you because it seems like you have plenty of evidence, and this is true throughout his life, balancing the idealistic with the practical but maybe yep. that's looking at it too kindly. Like some, may, maybe yep. there were occasions where either he got the calculation wrong or what was a moral cause didn't strike him as worthy as it should have. Well, he was the consummate politician. His eye was always on the question of whether he could bring the Democratic majority with a small d to his side, and that propelled him into certain compromises. For example, on the issue of uh, lynching in the South, there were a number of anti-lynching bills that uh, were in the Congress when he was president, and he would never endorse them, never sign on to them because he had this very close relationship with uh, Southern Democratic conservative segregationists. And he needed them to put across his uh, New Deal uh, welfare state legislation. And so he wasn't going to sacrifice that for the sake of uh, passing an anti-lynching bill. However, because his New Deal programs were so extensive and helpful to so many people who were impoverished by the Depression, blacks switched from the Republican Party to the Democratic Party so that by the end of uh, Roosevelt's 12 years in the presidency, blacks were a consistent force for the uh, Democrats, and they are to this day. And uh, so there was a transformation which was produced by a certain amount of political calculation on Roosevelt's part. He got, I mean, he got it right, and that's an important thing. If you make a political calculation, I'm, I'm just thinking of today, and you try yes. to balance a moral cause with a practical cause, if the bill that you're in favor of or if the calculation that you're making doesn't wind up paying off for you, history doesn't regard you kindly. And maybe historians should look back and say, well, he took a gamble or he made a calculation as opposed to he made a moral decision. Yes. He, you know, he made some blunders, but Roosevelt had a kind of political genius, you see. You know, I've told students over the years, uh, nobody can teach you how to be a politician. Those who are most successful at it intuit 
what needs to be done. Yeah, they have polling data, lots of polling data now, but Roosevelt did it in the days before polls were all that uh, reliable. Polling didn't become common until the mid-1930s. Yeah, and there are polls. I mean, Gallup was uh, just establishing itself, and you cite polls throughout the book where the public is on entering the war, where the public is on Roosevelt's popularity. How popular was Congress back pre-World War II? Well, Congress was very much in Franklin Roosevelt's shadow. Indeed, initially, some Republican congressmen said to Roosevelt in 33, as he was coming into office, you could take dictatorial powers because the Congress is divided among 500 plus people and we need you to lead the country. Now, Roosevelt wouldn't do it because he was afraid it would cause permanent damage to democracy. Mm -hmm. But there was such a sense of despair over that Great Depression. You know, 25 percent of the uh, workforce was unemployed. And uh, see, Roosevelt gave the country hope in at least two ways. One was they knew he had suffered a paralyzing attack of polio, but they thought he had recovered from it. Right. And the psychology was, gee whiz, he overcame this disability and we as a country now can overcome this depression. But also he gave these fireside chats. He used radio brilliantly the way you see John Kennedy use television. And now Trump has used this uh, tweeting business to mm-hmm. reach a, a large audience. But Roosevelt used radio, and he would give these fireside chats on Sunday night when there was likely to be the largest possible audience. He would close his eyes. He would fantasize sitting in the living room with you. He was the paterfamilias. He was the friend who was uh, coming into your living room. And um, people loved him. They loved it. Indeed, after he died... Somebody stopped Eleanor Roosevelt on the street and said, Mrs. Roosevelt, I miss the way your husband used to speak to me about my government. Can you imagine anyone saying that about (laughs) any politician now? (laughs) Or a first lady being able to be stopped on the street. (laughs) Do all Eleanor Roosevelt biographers have to resent Franklin Roosevelt a little? I guess so, because their marriage was not a very happy one. But, you know, both of them were public figures. They weren't invested in their private lives the way they were in their public lives. And Eleanor, of course, became the voice of liberalism in that administration, along with Harold Dickies, who was the uh, secretary of the interior. And uh, she was fighting for uh, minorities. She was fighting for blacks. She was fighting for more consideration for Jews and Catholics. And Roosevelt followed her lead to a certain extent, but he was more the politician who was thinking about the larger public than she was. But she was, I think, the greatest first lady in the country's history. And uh, I think that uh, stands true right to this day. Yeah, well, you know, Melania has a few years to work on that. (laughs) (laughs) It's so confusing and perplexing to me that Trump was able to take advantage of this moment at a time when people perceived there was a crisis, but actually there was material abundance and we weren't doing bad. We had just maybe convinced ourselves we were doing bad. Whereas with Roosevelt, 
wealth, as you say, 25% unemployment. And as you chronicle in the book, all the greatest minds in America were essentially saying there's nothing to be done. Yep. I wonder now when there aren't such problems, if we actually can concentrate our minds on an issue and do the right thing. It seems like we almost have the luxury of indulging in these uh, distractions today when we didn't in the time of Roosevelt. Yeah, I think it's a very good point. And I think, you know, people want something fresh in these campaigns. They want a different face. They want a different voice, uh, often a different party. And that's also why in these midterm elections, the party in power loses ground. Even the politically astute Roosevelt got hammered in midterm elections, maybe not his first midterm, but in subsequent midterms. <laughs> right. No, in 38, he got hammered, yeah. you see. And uh, if it weren't for the World War, I don't think he, he could possibly have won again in 1940. And I don't know that he even would have run because he had played out his eight years and uh, he was on the sort of a down, downslide, a yeah. downgrade. Just as economists will point to a business cycle, there is a political cycle and we naturally oh, yeah. veer against, no matter how successful, history remembers him as, you know, maybe the second greatest president or third greatest president ever. In fact, I would say that there is more agreement that he's the third greatest president ever than any other slot for presidents because everyone debates about Washington or Lincoln one and two and then and everyone I've seen has put Roosevelt third. Yeah, I agree. And that's what I've seen over the years. And I would tell you that professional historians would very much uh, agree with you. After all, what he did is so long lasting. First of all, all those alphabet agencies that he introduced, Social Security, he set up that welfare state, the WPA and the PWA, yeah. uh, the, the Rural Electrification Administration. That was a powerful appeal. A second thing that Roosevelt did that was transformative was to move the country from isolationism to internationalism. Uh, right up to Pearl Harbor in 1941, there was great resistance to the idea of getting involved in that Second World War. But Roosevelt managed public mood, attitude during the war, not just fighting the war and winning the war, but also managing the mood in the country so that it would be prepared to enter into a new era in foreign policy of internationalism. I have a couple more questions. Tell me the internal calculation that FDR went through in interning the Japanese. Because I want to talk about the entire idea of stains on a presidency and how we think about them. So how conflicted was he about the morality of that? Well, he knew that it was not in line with traditional American observance of minority rights. The American Civil Liberties Union later said that this was the greatest breach of civil liberties in the country's history. But the country was at war. We had suffered the setback at Pearl Harbor. We had lost uh, Guam, Midway. The Japanese were on the march across uh, the South Pacific. And there's such anger and hatred of uh, Japan. And there was a lot of racism behind that, of course, on the West Coast. Roosevelt, he is the consummate political animal and he understands that this will strike resonant chords with most Americans, you see. He, in a sense, strikes political gold by yeah. doing that. 
But by 1943-44, he understands that there is a source of military strength here in that they organize a Japanese unit that fights brilliantly in Italy and wins all sorts of uh, citations demonstrating their loyalty to the country, you see. So it's a black mark on Roosevelt's record, which will never be absolved. And of course, you know, several years ago, the Congress passed a rule or a law uh, compensating those who had been incarcerated $20,000 payments. But uh, a lot of the money was never distributed because a lot of these people passed away and the money does not go to their heirs. So there was a sense of uh, regret about that. So this is my question. During your lifetime, we've certainly seen a change in how we process or how historians and the public process the idea of the black mark on the presidency. And some of that is because, you know, historians used to, those who wrote history used to be the very same white men who in America uh, were always elected president. So there was a correction. I'm just wondering about a pendulum because with the movement to get Jackson off the 20, with taking down statues of Jefferson, with taking Woodrow Wilson's name off foreign policy school in Princeton, with the way that LBJ was uh, treated in the movie Selma. I wonder if we're looking at the presidencies of the past through the prism of the mores of today a little too much, do you think? Well, you know, it's inevitable because as the great Dutch historian Peter Gale said, uh, history is argument without end. And you always bring to bear contemporary biases, uh, judgments uh, against whoever served in the past, you see. When Franklin Roosevelt Memorial was opened here in Washington, D.C., they did not have a statue of FDR in his wheelchair. That is, demonstrating that he had been paralyzed. And the handicapped community battled and uh, Now, if you enter that Roosevelt Memorial, the first thing you see is Roosevelt sitting in a a wheelchair. And there was also controversy over whether to show Eleanor wearing fur coats or fur wraps (laughs) and and whether to show Roosevelt with a cigarette in his hand. So uh, (laughs) it's inevitable, I think, that you get this retrospective thinking that uh, perspective changes. Franklin D. Roosevelt, The Political Life is the book, and Robert Dalek is the author. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And now the spiel. Soon we will know what Alabama thinks. I said what, not if. We will know what they think, how they want us to think of them. And we will know this if we watch the returns tonight, as I plan to, on a quite granular level. Coosa County, Pickens County, Marengo County. These are some counties where Doug Jones should outperform Roy Moore if he is going to win. Marengo County, part of the so-called black belt of the state. Now, if you look at a map of Alabama, it's all red, but there is a blue dot in the capital and there is a blue band right above the coastline. And that is called the Black Belt. And the reason it's called the Black Belt is actually a bit of interesting linguistic jujitsu. They say it was called the Black Belt because of the rich topsoil. 
It also happened to be worked by, that rich soil was worked by black people, first as slaves, and then as sharecroppers, and now, to the extent that they're still involved in agriculture, as mostly poor residents of small rural counties. This is a phenomenon on election day, especially when we look at just one state. I mean, nationally, it's very hard to think of the individuals voting. But with this election or with Georgia's fifth election or with a couple of special elections, when we really focus in on and drive down on the county level, sometimes we forget that these are actual voters, actual people, not a bunch of statistics forming a bellwether. I mean, the reason it's a bellwether is that the people who are ringing the bell care about the weather. Before this election, what did we really know about Alabama? Not much. And what we knew, not good. The Crimson Tide was rolling. Everything else seemed stuck. Alabama, number four in college football and number four in chlamydia. Yes, according to the rankings in uh, 2016, Alabama had the fourth most cases per capita of chlamydia. So I guess they still make the chlamydia playoffs. Their hopes are still alive. Insofar as we have been concentrating on the people of Alabama, it's always in relation to who they're going to vote for. Is it going to be Jones? Is it going to be Moore? And then there's some attention paid to the non-voters because that's a decision as well. And there's a little bit of a pet peeve of mine. Lots of reports, and we'll hear it tonight, about black turnout. How are black voters voting in Alabama or are they voting in Alabama? And that's because in this state, which is so racially polarized, I mean, maybe more so than you even thought, the state's about 70 to 75% white. And of that 70 to 75%, 85% of that 70 to 75% voted against Barack Obama. Now, you know Obama didn't win. But in the 2012 election, when a lot of white people in purplish states in the Midwest or upper Midwest, Minnesota and Iowa, were voting for Barack Obama in even greater numbers than they had in the 2008 election, in the South, his appeal was plummeting. I understand why it's low because of the history of racism. I don't understand why it was so much lower than in 2008. Like you really realized the second time around, you know, he really is a black guy. So Obama got 15% of the white Alabama vote in 2012, and that stands as a proxy. And how it spins out is that the black vote in Alabama pretty much is the Democratic vote. Again, Doug Jones is going to need more than just black voters to turn out for him, but the black vote in Alabama, pretty much roughly equivalent to the Democratic vote in Alabama up until now. And so this is why you have reporters going in, doing these stories, interviewing black voters, and finding here and there in a mall, maybe even the Gadsden Mall, outside a church, at a ball game, black voters saying, yeah, I'm not that interested in this election. And this is scary. And this is appalling to the Stop Roy Jones coalition. But this is why it's annoying. Because it's unfair to the black voters. Most people are not passionate about this election. Lack of passion is everywhere. Turnout's not going to be 15%. Turnout might even be only half that. So in Alabama, masses and masses of people aren't voting. Among them, black voters. We rely on the black voters to be Democratic voters, but it seems pretty unfair to largely blame the black voters for not caring. Anyway, there's not even a black guy in this election. We never say if there are two black candidates running against each other, which sometimes happens. Tim Scott 
against uh, Tom Dixon in the South Carolina Senate race or Barack Obama against Alan Keyes for that Senate race in 2004. No one really asks, well, are white people going to vote? They don't really have a dog in this fight. And the other big thing about unfairly crediting or discrediting black voters who aren't particularly interested in this election, or if you hear tonight when they crunch the election results, an obsession on the black vote, because that would be the vote that could have won it for Doug Jones had they come out at 80%, even though the rest of the state's going to be coming out at whatever, 30%. You know, one of the unfair things is that what's driving this election is negative partisanship, But negative partisanship works best if you're really partisan. And if you're a non-voter or a likely non-voter, as most people are in special elections or just any off-year elections, you're much less likely to be partisan. So we have this dynamic where the people who are most impassioned are most partisan and they're most driven by negative partisanship and they're blaming the people least likely to be affected by that dynamic, by negative partisanship. The message, we've got to stop Roy Moore. The non-voter does not care. The whole, we've got to send a message to the Republican Party. The non-voter is not on that text chain. Message not received. This special election will not come down to black voters who do not care. It will come down to all voters who do not care. And the less they don't care which is a way of saying the more people get upset or rouse themselves to go to the poll, to the extent that some do, that will decide the election. So black voters, all of Alabamans probably saw what Charles Barkley said at a rally for Doug Jones yesterday. I am begging and urging everybody to get out, call all your friends. We, we got to, at some point, we got to stop looking like idiots to the nation. And by the way, don't you expect Kenny and Ernie to join in right after that? <laughs> They've got to switch to man-to-man if they want to invoke cloture. And then Shaq weighs in. Yeah, democracy dies in darkness, bro. I hope the voters of Alabama do rise to Charles Barkley's challenge. In fact, aren't too offended by him. You know, Barkley is a self-identified Republican, or was for a time. He said, I'm a Republican. I got money. They're the party of money. And by the way, going against Roy Moore is not being hypocritical. If you're a Republican who says, I got money, I want to protect it. Business conservatives are against Roy Moore also. But unlike the black voter, there's no belt of business conservatives. It's not easy to find a business-oriented white person in the mall and ask him if you're going to vote. And when that business conservative says, eh, I'm probably going to sit this one out. You don't see all the other business conservatives in Charlotte or Minneapolis or Ogden, Utah going, no, no, how can you not vote? You can't as readily identify the disaffected capitalist, the disaffected country club member, even the disaffected Christian who is against Roy Moore because of Jesus, right? That's all the people who are for Roy Moore explain it, Jesus. You don't see a lot of people saying, I'm against Roy Moore. Why Jesus? But um, to the extent that I understand what Jesus was saying, I would say you should oppose Roy Moore because Jesus... But these kind of white people aren't as easily identified and there won't be a lot of blame of them should Roy Moore win tonight. In fact, who's to blame? Well, it's every Alabaman, every Alabaman who voted for him, every Alabaman who stayed home. Should, in fact, Roy Moore win the election tonight? Should Roy Moore be given a seat in the upper house of the United States Congress? But if Roy Moore gets defeated, Alabama, I'm going to eat raccoon on this show. I promise you that. And also, you will have shown America, beyond not being idiots, that you really are champions. And this time, Nick Saban has nothing to do with it. 
And that's it for today's show. Just producer Pierre Bienname wants you to know that the state with the lowest rates of chlamydia, are you ready for this? West Virginia. They normally are on the other side of the economic indicator thing, not when it comes to chlamydia. Kudos, Mountaineers. The gist was also produced by Mary Wilson, who wants you to know that the state with the highest percent of dentists per resident, it's New Jersey. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. And his message today is that the state where the lowest percent of the people felt mentally distressed last month, it's South Dakota. The gist, with a message for you, state with the least chronic drinking, it's the home of Jack Daniels. It's Tennessee. But really, the chlamydia thing. I'm, I'm still on that. Oomperu, deperu, duperu, and thanks for listening.